Well, church, as we now approach the word of God this morning from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, I truly count it the highest privilege to announce to each one of us here that Christ is both Lord and God. He is indeed risen from the dead, just as he said he would. What other hope do we have but in that gospel truth? And I'm reminded of his words from John 20, verse 29, which say the following, Blessed are those, like us, who have not seen and yet have believed. This morning's passage is going to focus upon that aspect of seeing and believing, seeing and believing. But my main purpose behind our message this morning from the account of the resurrection in John 20, 1 through 18, is quite simple and straightforward. And it's this, that you, you, church, would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, for those of us who are familiar with these words from the Gospel of John, there is intrinsically an immediate temptation for each one of us upon hearing those words. For those words are all too familiar to us. The temptation is that we might hear those words casually and not receive them with the glee and the joyfulness that is proper and appropriate upon hearing this truth spoken over us. And so I want to encourage each one of us, whether you are already a believer in Christ, one who has tasted and seen that God and his salvation are indeed good, that Christ is risen, or if you are not yet a believer in Christ, Regardless of the case, I want us to carefully consider in John 20 this historic, time-tested, faithful gospel account of the bodily resurrection of the dead, of Jesus' being raised again to life. And that by hearing this message in John 20, by faith, you might believe that he is not only risen but that he himself is the resurrection. That he is not only alive, but that he is the life. Now in John 20, verses 1 through 18, our passage this morning, we will see two key proofs that Jesus is who he said he was. And these two proofs are that he is not just the resurrection, but is also the life. He is also not, secondly speaking, not just our teacher, but he is also our Lord. We're going to see that first point about the resurrection and the life in verses 1 through 10 of John 20, and the second point in verses 11 through 18 as it follows. Now, knowing this and having these things in mind, I want to reassure us and refresh our memories in regard to what the word of God itself is, as if hearing it for the first time, because the word of God is directly inspired by him without error, without accident. The word of God, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments proclaim to us by God's spirit all things pertaining to life and godliness. And scripture, above all else, reveals Jesus Christ crucified and raised above all else. As such, the word of God is authoritative and it is more than worthy of our attention this morning. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and come 
to the word of God from John 20, verses 1 through 18, and read this gospel account. The word of God says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around though and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said all these things to her. Thanks be to God. This is the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your word that testifies of you is forever faithful and true and that we have no hope or life apart from you, our risen Christ. God, we thank you for the excitement that this day, Resurrection Sunday, brings as it brings to the forefront of our mind the fact that you were the lamb for sinners slain and yet you, by the hand of the Father, the work of the Spirit, were raised back to life. You died for our sins, and yet were raised. Such a simple truth that even a child could understand, and yet such a profound truth that we as adults could and will spend the rest of our lives reveling in, 
reveling in the fact that the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. And that, as Derek was saying earlier, it was nothing short of your plan of redemption set forth from eternity past within the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to redeem a people for yourself, for your glory and for our good. And so we thank you for fulfilling that covenant, for fulfilling that oath that you took before the creation of this world to redeem ruined sinners for yourself, such as us. We pray that as this word of the gospel has been read and as now we tune our ears to hear what you by your spirit have to say to us, may we be recipients of such marvelous grace. May we be people who heed and hear the gospel as it is fitting for us this morning, that it would be a refreshment to us in the particular ways that we find ourselves in this morning, being in need of that grace. And so may we be met by your kindness and your goodness as Christ Jesus is displayed in his glory and no one less than him. Father, may I simply get out of the way and may you, by your spirit, do the preaching of your word for the sake of your people and for your glory, O oh God. So we ask all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Friends, with this passage still fresh in our minds, this passage from John 20, I want to remind us of the purpose behind this passage. And John himself portrays it to us later on in John 20. It's again that message and that purpose of belief. That we might believe all that is said here, receiving it in faith. But the curious thing about faith, as so many of us know already, is that faith itself is a gift. It's not something that we can conjure up within ourselves or, or foster or build up by our own merit or our own initiative. Rather, faith, all of it from beginning to end, is a gift from God. For Christ himself is the author and the perfecter or finisher of our faith. He is the one who starts it, who begins that good work in us of faith and carries it to the day of completion of Christ Jesus. But the idea of faith, as simple as this might sound, is that idea of trusting in the integrity of someone else. It's that idea even of resting upon the good character of another. To use an illustration of faith, I can imagine that I'm not the only person who the last probably year or two at least now has not had to use cash at all. <laughs> I kind of pride myself in that a little bit because it's kind of fun to say I haven't had to use cash. And I'm sure many of us might be in that same boat where all that we use now is a single credit card. But that credit card is something that we daily, as we make purchases, are putting our faith in. We want a card that protects our identity. And so personally, I have a card that doesn't have the number listed on the front, all those 16 digits, and it doesn't have the three-part code on the back so somebody could see it and take note of that and copy it down for later to tap into my account. <laughs> Rather, I am trusting every time I use that credit card, 
in the integrity of the system behind that purchase. I'm trusting that the credit card itself is protected and secure. I'm trusting that the NFC chip that is used as I wirelessly tap the phone to the surface using Apple Pay or whatever it might be that you might use is going to be trustworthy. And I'm trusting every time I use that card that the vendor of that machine, whether it be Walmart or Target or whatever have you, is worthy of my trust. And so over time, I continue to use my card and my trust in that system continues to become more and more solidified. But think about it this way. All it would take for me to lose trust in that entire system is for one failed purchase to happen. For my car to be stolen. Or for all of a sudden there to be a security breach of my account. Or for there to be a hacking that goes on where all of a sudden thousands upon thousands of accounts are hacked into. Or one wrong payment that seems to have come from my card that really wasn't me purchasing that in the first place. All of a sudden in that moment, my entire trust in that entire system would be broken. Well, friends, in the same way, the glory of Scripture is that all of the Old and New Testament, the Bible, is a system that is worth trusting in. The entirety of Scripture is without error and is entirely and perfectly coherent with itself. Though humanly speaking, the Bible was written by the hands of 40-some authors over the course of 2,000 years, it is nonetheless inspired by God, the author behind it all, the one who reveals himself to us through the word. And so scripture, theologically speaking, is what people call self-attesting. It testifies to itself. It is internally and perfectly, again, coherent with itself, never to be disproven or seen as in contradiction. But sometimes we see things in scripture that can appear at first glance contradictory. For instance, in the gospel account of the resurrection, we see certain things that might seem to differ between John or Luke or somewhere else. But God, and here's the reason behind this, God in his divine wisdom also chose to use the human writers of scripture and their personalities to emphasize key traits and key events in nuanced ways that truly are not contradictory, though they might seem different. You know, why does John emphasize this, whereas Luke emphasizes this? It's because the Lord, through John, wanted to convey something of special importance here in John 20. As an example of this particular nuance, we see in the Gospel of John's account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ risen from the dead, something different that he articulates here, when, again, you compare it to the Gospel of Luke. For instance, in Luke 24.10, also another account of the resurrection, holy, true, and trustworthy, we know that there were actually several women who came to the tomb of Jesus. Women who came that Sunday morning with spices and ointments in hand in order to honor the Lord Jesus. Earlier in Luke 8, verses 2 through 3, though, we see that those women by name were none other than Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Joanna, who was the wife of Chutza, King Herod's household manager of all people, came to the tomb. She was a follower of Christ. Uh, Susanna as well, and others as well that are also listed throughout the book of Luth, as he gives specific examples of names. 
However, in the Gospel of John, the writer chooses, interestingly so, to emphasize Mary Magdalene singularly. And so that raises a question for us. Why Mary? What was so important about Mary Magdalene that John chose to emphasize her over Susanna or Joanna or the others who were with her in that same moment? Well, it showed, quite frankly, that the woman who followed Jesus all along had the courage and audacity to continue to honor him as Lord, even in his death and burial. More so even than the 11 disciples who had also followed Jesus for years. And so John chooses to emphasize for some odd reason that these women were actually more loyal to the death, quite literally, of our Lord and continued to identify themselves with him even as he was crucified and beyond. Furthermore, then, it actually showed implicitly the inherent smallness of the faith of the 11 disciples as they were still hiding away in their homes during this same time, during the beginning of John 20, verses 1 and following. We see that they were still hiding away in fear. What would happen if they crucified their Lord? Would they be next? What would happen to them? And yet the women took courage. But the focus, and I want to point this out, is that there is something here, the focus upon Mary, is something so much grander than just the fact that women were the first to testify of the resurrected Christ, which a whole other sermon could be given about how that in and of itself is evidence for the resurrection. More so than even the boldness of the apostles as they then saw the resurrected Christ and then proclaimed with boldness, their fear turning into boldness upon seeing Jesus. More so than these things, what we see John emphasize here with Mary Magdalene is something more mysterious and yet personal. We see this grand display of God's salvation right here in our text. So what about Mary? Again, what made her so special? Well, we know from Luke chapter 8 that Mary was one who had been possessed by demons. In fact, Luke 8 says that she had been possessed by seven demons. In other words, she was so lost prior to her faith in Christ that she had become possessed. This was a strange time in the history of the world where as Christ was upon the earth, there was much demonic activity that we read of in the Gospels, something that was particular to that stage or that era in life. As Christ had come to earth, literally all of hell was breaking loose in opposition to him. Hence why we see so many accounts of him casting out the demons out of Mary Magdalene and others, those who were possessed, and dealing firsthand with these things, showing his authority and power over all of even the spiritual forces of darkness. All hell was breaking loose. But Mary here, as one who had been rescued by Jesus, physically speaking even, rescued from that demonic oppression, became one who, having been before beyond reprieve, beyond uh, relief of these things, she then became, by Christ's rescuing, someone who couldn't not follow Jesus. 
and commit her entire life to him, her Lord who rescued her. And so Mary Magdalene from that moment on, from this time in Luke 8, was so devoted to Jesus. She was so devoted, in fact, that she was among the few who, again, we know from John and other places like Luke, was there at the crucifixion scene itself. She had known the saving power of Jesus in such a way that, again, she identified with him even in his death. And now in John 20, even in his burial. And so she continued to do so because she had been forgiven much and she had been loved much. And so her faith took to action as we see here in John 20. Here again, John 20, verse one, the account here, now knowing the background. It says this, now on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Friends, I can imagine that she and the other women who were with her were startled in that moment. And so they gathered up the courage, though, to go ahead and figured out, okay, it's probably best to tell somebody about this news of what has happened. So they ran back to the disciples and told, especially Peter and John, who at least believed them and would listen to them, what they saw, that the stone had been rolled away, that something had happened, the Lord was gone We can't quite figure it out. Come and see this. Come quickly. They were convinced, though, Mary especially, as we know, that someone had come and taken away the body of the Lord Jesus. And so they were absolutely distraught. And so upon hearing this news, Peter and John both ran briskly back over to the tomb. And I think it's funny, as I'm picturing this scene, it seems as if John might have been teasing Peter a little bit for either being a slow runner, because it says that he outran him, he got there first, or something of the sort. For whatever reason, John just had to include that fact (laughs) that he outran Peter and made it there first to the finish line. And yet John then saw the open tomb and waited for Peter to catch up. Peter then approaches the tomb as we see, and he steps in cautiously before the others. He steps in and he sees the long strands of linen that had been hurriedly wrapped around Jesus' body within a short time right before the Passover, or rather the Sabbath was about to take place on Good Friday. He saw the linens, though, set aside and carefully folded up neatly and put off to the side. And the handkerchief that was around Jesus' face was also folded up and set aside on the opposite side of the tomb in there. Verse 6, though, says the following about these things, that Peter saw these things. He saw these things. But notice what it says about John's reaction. When John finally stepped into the tomb, it says this, that John saw and believed. The scripture says this, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. And so Peter and John returned to their homes. Probably, I can imagine, entirely confused. What is going on? How does this fit in with what Jesus had told us the past three or so odd years of his earthly ministry? How does this all fit together? And I can imagine in that time, this isn't in scripture, but walking back, 
they probably began to piece together some of the things that they had seen. All of a sudden, some of those statements would have made a little more sense to them, though they hadn't yet seen the full picture, all the things that Jesus had taught concerning himself, that he was not just the one who taught scriptures with a sense of authority, being the author of them in the first place. It wasn't that he just worked miracles. It wasn't just that he raised even the dead like Lazarus and others that they had seen. There was something so much grander that they had yet to believe. But notice that dichotomy there between seeing and believing going on here. Seeing and believing. See, in time, as we read later in John, they would come to find that all of those I am statements that Christ made, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him, that he is the door, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the one who lays down his life for the sheep, that he is the bread of life who gives life to the world, that he is the manna sent from heaven, that he in himself is living water. All of these statements and more, I imagine, began to click in some ways for Peter and John, these divine expressions. For Jesus had not just been raised from the dead, He, as we then go on to read in John 20, verses 19 and following, as he appeared to them later, proved himself to be the resurrection and the life, their maker and their redeemer. And later on, as we were to, if we were to read the account of the passage as it follows, we would see that Christ would appear before his disciples, so proving his bodily resurrection along with over 500 other eyewitnesses. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, Luke 24, Matthew 28, and Acts 1, among other places. But what about Mary? I'd like to go back to her, as she seems to be the center figure here as Jesus proves his resurrection from the dead. What about Mary? How was Mary responding to the shock of what she had witnessed right there at that empty tomb with the stone rolled away? Well, look with me again at what John 20 verses 11 and following say. For here, Christ doesn't just prove himself to be the resurrection and the life. Here, he proves himself to be our teacher and our Lord during the second half. John 20, verse 11 and following says this, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Now, the theologian John Calvin, in his commentary upon John 20, mentions that this exchange was probably longer than what we just read right there. I imagine a lot more was said than just this simple exchange of thought. There was probably this sense that the angels, those mysterious figures, luminescent in white, try to comfort her. Why are you weeping? There's so much to unpack there. Why are you weeping? 
And John Calvin says, hey, they probably had a lengthy conversation. I'm sure they tried to actually comfort her, but they couldn't. Even the angels couldn't comfort her, is what Calvin says. Nothing could comfort her in that moment. But what is interesting is that there is something so much more important going on that we need to hear ourselves. It's the reason that John doesn't give the full explanation, the full uh, exchange of what Mary and the angels might have had. He emphasizes something for us who hear to this day, for us to take and receive. Important words of primary and chief importance. And what is that primary importance? Was well, a teaser in the meantime, before I answer, it is that this concern from Mary came from a place of shock, complete shock, and, catch this, panic, panic. See, when you think about it this way, Mary's face in this moment must have been riddled with panic, traumatized, quite literally, at what she had seen before her. Have you, friends, ever seen the look of panic upon somebody else's face? Do you know what the face of panic looks like? Years ago, I was working in a counseling office at Liberty University for about three years. This is a long time ago now, and much of my job, though, there as a student at the time entailed working directly with students who were going through intense crises. Moments where they would come into the office with a look of shock and panic all over their face. Pale. You could just see it all over them. Looking for help. And so I, even as a student worker in that office at the time, in that counseling office, there sitting at the front desk and trying to assuage them a little bit and comfort them and get them to a counselor, there during those three years, I learned to recognize quickly what the face of panic looks like. And everything here in this narrative of John 20 describes the face of panic in Mary. See, Mary herself in this narrative was in that state of mind. When we see her running back to the disciples for help, when we see her brisk return back to the tomb, her even waiting outside of the tomb, not wanting to go in because she just was so stunned, we see a person in panic. And even the words and her endless weeping before the angels speaks nothing short of shock and trauma. Nothing in the world could comfort Mary in this moment, humanly speaking. See, Mary, just two days prior, had seen the most traumatic event in the history of the world unfold before her own eyes as the Son of God, her Lord, was mocked and crucified and beaten by sinful men. She had seen the Lord Jesus, the true shepherd of his people, abandoned by his own in his moment of utmost need. Even Peter, who appeared so bold leading up to the crucifixion, was frightened during the crucifixion and wasn't even present. John alone, when it came to the disciples, was with her as Christ was crucified. 
And so she had devoted herself, just as prior, to years of service to her master and teacher and had continued to seek his honor and his fame. And now here in the garden tomb, she stands weeping, broken, in shock. What in the world is going on? I have no hope. I am lost. And yet, friends, it is here in this moment of utter desolation when, again, nothing in the world could ever comfort her that something grand happened. Here in this moment, she seemed as if she would never see Christ even his lifeless body and an overwhelming um, emotion was just lost. But then she heard a voice. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing this voice to be that of the gardener, she responded, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. In other words, he is my life. I have nothing else apart from him. I'll still identify with him. Even if he's been just put aside and cast away, I'll still identify with Jesus. For I'm as good as dead myself. I have nothing else to live for. Jesus was my life. But church, hear the response to Mary in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means my teacher, my teacher. Friends, words cannot truly express the love in Jesus' short word of calling her by name, Mary, and her response. For he was not dead, he was risen. Christ Jesus appeared to her before appearing to the other disciples. He knew what was in her. He knew what she needed in that moment. What selfless love displayed by our Savior, the Lord over the universe. Rather than appearing before kings and princes and displaying his power through pomp and circumstance, before these people, rightfully so, as he will one day do at his second coming, he rather chose to appear to a lowly woman named Mary Magdalene. It was in this moment that her eyes were opened to see the king as he was in all of his beauty. One whom at first was thought to be a simple gardener, but Christ opened her eyes. And catch this, he gave her purpose. He being the life and her Lord gave her purpose. See, rather than letting her live in this uncomforted state, this hopelessness, he proved himself to be alive and worth living for. He said to her, giving her these specific instructions, do not cling to me. Essentially saying, there's something far better for you to do than even cling to me right now. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. See, here the Lord Jesus proclaimed 
to her a hope that is beyond all comparison. It's a hope that theologians call this doctrine of the union with Christ. That we who have faith in Christ are so identified with him in his death and burial and resurrection that what is true of Jesus as God the Father looks at his son is now true of us. Jesus, who is the eternal son of God by nature, that is true. But now we, in union with Christ, are considered sons and daughters of God through adoption. While we are not those things by nature, through his saving work, we are now brought into that position before God. And so when God the Father looks at you, believer, loved one of God, he doesn't see you in all your sin. He sees Jesus. He sees his perfect righteousness speaking and pleading over you. Do you catch that? See, come what may, for those, of us, for those of us who are united to Christ in faith, there is no safer place in the world to be than in that knowledge that the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us, that we are united to Christ in faith. And that Jesus, who was raised from the dead, will at the last also raise our earthly bodies to glory. For he is so much more than just a teacher. He is our Lord. And he's more than even just the resurrection itself. He is our life beginning to end. Fittingly so, Mary obeyed Jesus. John 20, verse 18 says this, that Mary Magdalene then went and announced to the disciples, and catch this, I have seen the Lord. And she told them all that Christ had said to her. Friends, as we conclude, I cannot think of a greater expression of faith than that of Mary Magdalene's, which is why I've been focusing this upon this so much in this morning's passage because this faith that Jesus gave her, the statement of that faith is nothing short of, I have seen the Lord. And that's not just a statement of, I've seen him, like I've seen his bodily resurrection, but it is, I've seen and I've believed. I cast my entire life upon this hope and nothing less. See, while Christ would soon appear to the other disciples and hundreds more shortly after this to prove his bodily resurrection from the dead, Mary Magdalene in John 20 wholly casted herself upon Christ as risen. Christ as risen indeed. So, will we believers, as we conclude, will we believers in Christ do the same? Will we wholly cast our lives upon Jesus? finding him to be our Lord and our life, our teacher and our resurrection? Will we, who have yet to see Christ with our own eyes, yet have seen him by faith in the meantime, the king in all of his beauty, will we live by faith in the Son of God? Well, as Jesus declared to his disciples, 
and declares to us now who believe, blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in you is life eternal, that in you we have hope that goes beyond the grave. We thank you, Father, that death has lost its sting, that the grave has lost its victory in you because you have triumphed and trampled over death, trampling down death itself by your death. And so we cannot help but proclaim that you, Lord Jesus, are risen. And we thank you for that. May we so see these things by faith and believe that you are who you are and live in accordance with these things. And so we pray all this in your holy and majestic name. Amen.